Hi, my name is Bill Cumby. I'm a teacher at uh, First Church Ministries in Newport News. And we're going through the book of Genesis, and we're in Genesis chapter 2. Um, the first uh, two lessons in Genesis 2 were on the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to try to finish up Genesis 2 today. And uh, um, this is uh, the kernel of the gospel is contained in the early parts of Genesis. Um, and so I'm very excited to be doing that. And let's open in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for the time we have together. We thank you that you give us your word, that you, um, though you satisfy our curiosity, um, you satisfy our needs, you help us understand where we are, what our place is in the world and in the universe, and we're so thankful that you have considered us and um, held us as precious and that you have created a world um, of blessing for us. And Lord, I, I pray that as we study your word and we open it now, that we might be truly thankful for the many good things you've given us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So um, we're in Genesis, gone through chapter 1. And again, this is a key verse, I, I'd say, not only of Genesis, but of uh, the entire uh, Bible. And you're going to see why. We're going to do a little bit of a review on chapter 1. Um, and then we're going to be going into chapter 2 now. Um, Genesis is a book about beginnings. Uh, it's very different from uh, other creation stories. No other creation stories has two accounts of creation like it does. It's almost stereo vision, okay? And we're going to talk a little about that. It's a very straightforward account. It's logically laid out. It discusses all aspects of creation. It's really specifically very targeted and crafted to say that God created everything. Uh, there, and other creation stories talk about there being other gods and or the, the creation isn't a full creation, but there are always other gods in there too. Genesis takes special pain to make sure that there are no other gods in here. There, they, 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 there is no mention of even the angels or angelic beings or anything else. This is God. God did it all. Um, and uh, it's the only um, thing that uh, discusses time, knows its significance. And uh, we discussed that last week and the week before about the Sabbath, the fact that that time is part of God's creation. And when you really think about it, um, it sets apart um, humans from, um, from, let's say, angels, okay? Angels rebelled, and there was no chance, there's no redemption for the angels. They knew, they knew, had full knowledge of God and made a decision right or wrong with their full knowledge, where humans were stuck in space-time, and we, we sinned in ignorance, and, and willfully also, we'll see, but we also have a chance to repent and to be redeemed, which is a creation of time sequence in there. And so, so Genesis talks about time too. And we don't want to ignore that. I think sometimes we don't really, uh, don't want to be overly philosophical about it, but we do want to think about the meaning of why we're here and what life is like. And so we get six days, we get an instantaneous creation, six days of furnishing of the world. And, and again, we see that uh, the, the universe, the light and the dark, the sky and the sea and the land, so it gets focused from, from the wide spectrum all the way down to the land. And then we see the light and dark is filled with sun, moons, and stars, the sky and sea with sea air and air animals, and then land animals and man. Again, specifically crafted so there's nothing left out, that God has created it all. And he's done it very well. And on the Sabbath, God reflects on that. God reflects on that and enjoys that and 
And again, one of the things I, I think that we don't really appreciate, again, is the gift we have sometimes of life, the gift we have of a beautiful universe, an unimaginably vast universe, uh, a world that's full of wonders. I don't know if you watch the Nature Channel, you, you think, did they spray paint that animal? Or, you know, what's going on here? In fact, I remember the duckbill platypus when it was sent back, duckbill platypus in Australia, when it was sent back to people in England, they thought it was a farce because it had the duck bill and it had claws for its thing and it, it suckled its young, um, but it laid eggs, but it suckled them. And so they didn't know what to make, it had a beaver tail. So they didn't know what to make of it. And they actually thought someone had sewn together animal skins and parts to do that. And it's sometimes it's like that, which is a wonderful creation, a very varied creation. And so, so the Sabbath gives us a chance to not only appreciate that, but appreciate that we're part of that. And we're not just part of it, but man is, the pinnacle, the crown of creation. And so uh, my, my son was visiting this past week, and, uh, and I, was, I, I talked to my younger son and then I talked to my older son about how Genesis chapter 1 is, uh, there's a, a movie, uh, uh, Henry V, the Shakespeare play, that uh, Kenneth Branagh did. And at the very beginning, there's the, uh, the guys on the stage giving the prologue, and he's setting the stage for what the play's going to be like. And, the wonder of it is he, he sets it all very concisely to set the stage so that when it opens up, you see King Harry, who was uh, very dissolute in his youth, now very devout and really uh, serious and, and, uh, and considering the claims on his, that he has in the crown for France. Uh, but the, there's a prologue here that sets the stage for that. Genesis 1 is like that. Genesis 1 is a prologue. It's not, in, it's not the focal point. Now, now, this is the focal point of chapter 1, but it, it, it's really this focal point carries over into chapter 2 when it discusses mankind. And so we see here at the very pinnacle of the prologue here, it says, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we see this creation, uh, again, repeated three times. We see it at the very beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then God created the animals. It, the word uh, bara used something from nothing, creation from nothing. Here it's mentioned three times, and it's mentioned sort of in a prose standpoint because mankind is indeed the pinnacle of God's creation. And we get an idea of what it means to be created in the image of God in the language. And one of the things is here is there's a community aspect, male and female. There's, not, there's a, a oneness to mankind, but there's also a community uh, aspect. And we also see that he's given dominion over these things. And we're going to see that played out in chapter 2 here. So before we go on to that, though, uh, we'll see in, in chapter 1, um, God is always Elohim, okay? That's the word that's used for that, and that's a generic name for God. Um, I wanted to go over this because you now see a transition in chapter 2 to the Lord God, okay? And the Lord, all in cap letters, okay? Uh, Lord is really the tetragram, the Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H uh, thing. And you will see that, that here uh, you see the Yahweh, and that's how it's written. Now, the Jewish people did not ever want to pronounce that word. So they actually took the vowel consonants 
from Adonai, which is, an, is a word for Lord right here. And they took that Adonai and they transposed that onto Yahweh and so it became Yahovah or Jehovah. And that's how we got the word Jehovah, okay? So Hebrew was not a living language at the time that Jehovah came into being, okay? The language is literally recreated with the rebirth of Israel. And so the Jewish scholars of that time, little that there were, um, there were Jewish people, but the Christians that were Jewish scholars translated this thing and, and translated to Jehovah. And so that's where the word Yahweh and Jehovah are the same, but transliterated too. Uh, and so you'll see that. And the reason I'm going through all this is because when we go into chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, we start seeing the word, and I, I capitalized, I, I bolded it here, Lord God. So it says, when the Lord God, what that says is Yahweh Elohim. The Both words are there. It's Yahweh Elohim. But again, the Hebrew person would read Adonai, Elohim. He would never say Hashem, the word. He would never say the name there. So, so, um, so we see that there's now a, a different shift. And why do I point this out? Well, because chapter one is really uh, a, a universal discussion of creation of the world and the backlog of this. And then chapter two is a discussion of how God took mankind and, and in a personal relationship. And so you start talking about God in a personal way. And so Yahweh is used here. Uh, again, that word, uh, the word Yahweh, uh, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, is literally what it means, uh, was revealed to Moses uh, and the burning bush when God gave the name. And so Genesis, we, we hold, is written by, was, was written down by Moses and given to him at Mount Sinai. So the word the, the name would have been in use at that time when the, this, this transcript was given. So, um, so let's go into Genesis chapter 2. And, and, uh, and again, uh, we covered the first three verses, which were really on the Sabbath. And that was actually should have been part of chapter 1. All those words in God for their Elohim, okay? The transition occurs here in verse 4. So this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the, he- the earth and the heavens. No shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing um, to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there was separated into four headwaters. The first of them uh, name was Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. (coughs) The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it it winds through the entire land of Cush, uh, which would be, again, uh, southern Egypt. Cush would be southern Egypt. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs on the east side of the Ashur, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. (coughs) And again, these two rivers are actually in Iraq area now, Turkey and Iraq. Excuse me. So what is the meaning of this, and what's going on here? Um, 
the Bible is rooted in history. And this is an historical account of the Garden of Eden. It is not, it is not intended as a fairy tale. It's intended as a true reading of what's happened there. The rivers are separated now from where they were. Um, I, I, I do believe there was a time when the geography lent themselves to this thing. The, the, plate, the, the earth, it, again, moves over time. There's been plate tectonics and such. Um, but this is intended as a historical account. He's going into where gold is found, the aromatic resin. He's trying to help them understand to the people at that time, oh, I know what that is, I know what this is, I know what that's going on. Now, the readers here knew where the Euphrates and, and um, uh, Tigris were, and they also knew where the Nile was, um, the, the Cush, um, uh, winding through Cush. And so they knew that they were not necessarily close by at that time, but they knew that this, again, is an historical account. But it's, it's, it's rooted there because God wants us to understand that he took care of man. So we get here as a picture of God creating the whole world well, and then him making a special home, a home for man, where he plants a garden. And, and again, you hear about the water coming up, watering the ground. They grew up in, again, the, they were leaving Egypt. It didn't rain in Egypt. I was in Egypt for a couple years working. It doesn't rain in Egypt. The Nile supplies it. So he was talking about here, having them understand that at the time, there were, the, God actually sent up springs to water the ground in the mist. And so he's trying to help them understand that this is a real place with real people that, that planted with good food, the, the trees for the fruit and stuff, a, a wonderful place, okay? And some people have actually posited that this is almost like a temple setting type thing, just a, 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 a place that mankind can commune with God in, in, in perfection. Um, and so we see that here. So not going to spend a lot more time on that. You can take a look at this and sort of consider what it is, but that's the setting. That's what's going on here. Um, and then you see that uh, man is, is called to exercise dominion over the animal. So it goes on from there. And uh, the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, again, pointing out things as we go along, work is not a curse. Work is good. We are made to work, okay? Hard work. And work that is unfruitful is, is part of the problem, okay, that we get into in the fall. But it, work is something we're created to do. We, we, God wants us to be creative. God wants us to participate in it. And it's not, uh, may, it's just not going through the motions. We, God has made us co-regents of the earth. He's giving us authority over it, and he wants us to invent and to discover and to do things. And so it's an exciting thing. We have a, a real world to tame and to, to uh, appreciate and to cooperate with and grow with. Uh, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Uh, and the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. And he brought each of the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature was his, its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. Now this is packed. And again, Part of this is an overview for you to understand and for you to really think about. Sometimes I just look at this and I just look at it for 
half hour, hour, just trying to imagine what's going on here. Um, so, so let's let's dissect some of this. Well, number one, there's a tree that they, they can eat from all the trees of the garden except for this one, and it's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, uh, there was a French philosopher who, who said that God would not punish me just from eating from a tree. It's such a small thing. And um, we said, what, what's the punishment? Uh, you know, why such a great punishment for such a small transgression? Well, number one, it's against not the level of transgression, but who you transgress against, number one. And number two, the simplicity of it all is it was so easy to resist. I mean, God basically, so I do a lot of research work, and sometimes I get to set my own goals that I want to work on. And I always try to make the goals achievable goals, okay? And, and it, this is such a simple goal. Everything, you can have everything here, but this one thing. And it, yes, there's a punishment because it was so simple. All you had to do was listen to this one thing. Now, we're going to talk about why that's there and the result of that in the next chapter. But just, just for now, track with me here. It's pretty simple. It's the middle of the garden. You can't, you can't avoid it. You can't ignore it. You can ignore it. You can avoid it if you want, but it's in the center there. You see it, and all you have to do is not eat there. You can't do it by accident. You've got to do, go in there, and you can do anything else. And then he says, and God says, it's not good for man to be alone. Now, again, in chapter 1, if you only had chapter 1, you would say that male and female were created at the same time. Okay? This is a warning against uh, trying to read things into Genesis 1 and 2 that aren't there because there is a time gap there. In fact, it's a pretty wide time gap where Adam names all the animals before Eve is formed. So it, it, that's, a, that's a pretty long time, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the interest is, is God always intended for man not to be alone. Genesis 1 shows that, and this Genesis uh, 2 also shows that. So, But he wants to help the man understand that he's alone. And so he forms the animals from the dust. And man is formed from the dust like the animals. The difference with man is that God breathed into him. So the breath of God is in the life of man. We are, we are independent creations. We are not created from the animals. We share very strong similarities with the animals. We have an animal body, but there's more to us than that. And so uh, he, he um, forms the animals. And he brings them, and he does not mention the sea animals, because I guess they weren't near the sea, and he didn't name the sea animals, but he named the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. And uh, he brings them to him to see what, and he says he brings them to them to see what he would name them. So it's almost like God's thinking, I wonder what he's going to name them. Now, we know God knows, okay? God, the, but it's, it, it's a relationship here where God is delighting in what he's giving, the gift he's given to mankind, and mankind is delighting in that gift and naming it. And there's authority when you name something. And you, you name your possessions, okay? You know, you get a new car, a lot of times it gets a nickname. You get a pet, you get a nickname. You know, you, you, so naming has, and had even more of a formality, a formal thing here, but he named the animals. He ex exercised authority over them. Um, and so, there, but there's no, uh, it, there's no striving for authority. The animals, God brought the animals and he named them and that, that was the name that they had, it says. So he gave his name to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. Now, I have a reference back to Genesis 24 and 25 here. 
And the reason I have that is because when God made the animals, the land animals, he actually made three kinds of land animals. This becomes important in chapter 3. Okay? So the three kinds are listed here. Number one, God made the wild animals according to their kind, and then the livestock according to their kind, and the creatures to move along the ground according to their kind. So there's three classes of animals. It's the wild animals, so you know, lion, king of the jungle. This is the wild animals, top of the food chain, so to speak. There's the livestock, and again, this is not taxa taxonomic. This is something that the average agrarian farmer would understand. Okay, there's the wild animals, there's the domesticated animals, and then there's the creepy crawly things that are out there, the, the insects, the, the worms and stuff and, and things. So, so there's three classes of animals. The highest, the wild animals. The next, the domesticated animals. And the lowest, the creepy crawly. Now I'll give you a, a preview into chapter three and, and that we'll be talking about it uh, in the next lesson. But the serpent was the greatest of the wild animals. He was the top of the food chain. And when he was cursed, he became a creepy crawly. He went to the lowest, okay? So there was a, um, there was a, a punishment or a curse based on uh, his position and, and not fulfilling that position correctly. We'll, we'll leave it at that. We'll talk about that in the next lesson. So um, uh, this is the last slide on this one. So but for Adam, no um, suitable helper was found. So the, God, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs. He, he took a part from his side. It doesn't really say man's ribs. And then closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a man from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So again, we get the reference back here that male and female, he created man on this. And, and so we, we see that there was no helper suitable for him. So um, again, um, I, I have to say, uh, this is an historical account. I, I don't see, I, I quite frankly don't see, I, I, I don't want to pick bones on evolution right now, okay? except to say that man was not the result of evolution. And man did not marry into the animal family, so to speak, either. There was a person created out of him. And so man is a special creation, and man uh, and woman is a special creation. They were created in God's image to have the breath of God in them. And, uh, and when Adam saw this, and created from a side, so there's a Hebrew saying that was uh, a, created from his side, not from his head that she would rule over him or feet that she would serve him, but from his side so she would be a helpmate to him. And so that was the thing, so there's a quality here. There is not a superiority uh, of male over female. There's an equality here taken out of the side and considered equal. And the reason we know they're considered equal is because we go back to chapter 1 and 27 where the, he talks about the equality that's created in the image of God, both male and female. There's not like Male is, is the image of God and the female is the image of man. And, and there is an echo of that in Paul when he's talking about in the fall and such. Uh, he talks about the fall and the implications on that. But here we understand that male and female are equal. They're created together. And um, that's important, I think, especially in some of these days where we talk about the, 
there's a lot of arguments going over that the Bible's been oppressive to women and stuff like that. It's never been the case. It's been interpreted that way. But uh, just because you misinterpret so something does not mean that it doesn't have validity in its right interpretation. People have a hard time seeing equality and with, uh, with lack of precedence, okay? And yes, the man preceded the woman. Um, we as Christians hold that, uh, that uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we hold that they are all equal. And unfortunately in our mind, we can't really deal with that, and so the Father always gets, seems to get precedent, or, or the Son, but never the Holy Spirit. <laughs> There's also a book out called For God and God, because, oh yeah, God. Mm. Uh, but Adam and Eve were created equal. They were created together, and they needed each other. There was not a completeness without Eve. And God wanted Adam to understand that. God could have created Eve, and then they could have all named the animals together. God wanted man to see that he needed more, that he was not complete without that, that mankind was not complete. And so they did that, and it says at the very end we get this, this thing, and they were both naked and they felt no shame. Again, that gets played on in chapter um, in, in the next chapter. Uh, so, so this is the end of chapter 2. We're going into 3. Uh, we're going to close the lesson here, but then we're going to open it back up in chapter 3. So what happens? Now Adam and Eve are together. What happens? And we all know the story. I, I'm not sure we know it well enough. Um, uh, I know I don't know it well enough. And uh, we'll take another look at it and see what we can get out of it this next time. So um, we'll close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you love us and care for us. We thank you that um, you have created us as a community, that individually we have relationships with you, but we also have a community with you, and that that foreshadows the, uh, the church itself being the body of Christ and the bride of Christ, that there's a union that, that we are working to that uh, in eternity that is exciting. Here we see the beginning, here we see the start, and I, I just ask you to help us really appreciate and be thankful for the great gifts you've given us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.